Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Petra Alderman, and I am an associate researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen and a postdoctoral research fellow at the International Development Department at the University of Birmingham. In this episode, I'm joined by Saksit Saisonbat, CNA's Thailand correspondent in Bangkok. Saxon and I first met probably six years ago in Bangkok, and we have been in touch ever since. I am a fan of Saxon's reporting and analysis of Thai politics, so I'm really pleased that he has accepted my invitation to talk on the podcast today. Welcome, Saxon. Hey, Pedro. Thanks for having me. On the 22nd of May 2022, which also happened to be the eighth anniversary of Thailand's 2014 coup, we had some more elections This time it was for the local administration and council elections in Bangkok and Pattaya, and also the gubernatorial election in Bangkok. Just to give a little bit of background to those listeners who might not be familiar with Thai politics, Bangkok is actually the only province in Thailand where the governor is elected as opposed to selected or appointed by the Ministry of Interior. So generally, the Bangkok gubernatorial election is quite a big deal, and We really haven't had election like this in Thailand since 2013, so since before the coup. So this was a really big deal. Nine years of having an appointed governor who was appointed by the military junta were officially over and the 22nd May 2020 election was a new beginning. So Zaxi, how was the atmosphere in the run up to the election? What was the public mood like? There was definitely an air of excitement. As you said yourself, it's been nine years since we had a local election for a governor here in Bangkok, and it was a very long time. A lot has changed. The political landscape has changed. So there was definitely an appetite for not only these elections, but also for a certain change in the style of the politics that there were. And basically the past two months, it was a frenzy of uh, a lot of different candidates vying for the top job. We had 31 candidates, the biggest field ever, to run for governor. We had many well-known faces, some less well-known faces, some running as an independent, some running from established political parties, some from new political parties. So it was a very mixed and very colorful field of candidates, all uh, gunning for this top job. But it also, unlike previous gubernatorial elections, it also has a lot of national implications as well. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you pointed out that there were 31 candidates. I mean, that was the biggest number probably ever, right, in Bangkok's history, really, in terms of candidates. And as you also mentioned, there were a lot of quasi-independent candidates, but really they were not, as we know, probably so independent. We now have some results, obviously. The Election Commission of Thailand will officially confirm them, I believe, within 30 days or so, but we know who has won. And the winning candidate was Chacha Sitipand. He was one of these quasi-independent candidates, but not really. So what do you make of Chacha's campaign and what was the impression? 
I think before we get to that, maybe a, a little few details about the person himself. Chachat Sitipan, 55 years old, now 56 years old, former transport minister of Thailand during the government of Yingluck Shinawat almost a decade ago. And for those that don't know, Yingluck Shinawat is the sister of former Thai Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat, a very colorful, but also to many, a very controversial figure. But the interesting thing already with Chachat is that despite this association, he was and is his own man. And uh, he is somebody that a lot of people like uh, despite his associations. And this is uh, something that he was able to profit in this campaign. I mean, yes, he was with, Purtai, with the Purtai party before, the current opposition party, but he made himself very clear that he is an independent candidate and has nothing to do with Purtai, at least on the surface. And he himself admitted as much that running as an independent is going to make himself a lot more palatable to mm. a lot of voters here in Bangkok and also is going to make uh, make it easier also for him to work with the city officials as well. And I think that is one of the main reasons why he has actually won, that he's not only an independent, but he's also a very pragmatic person, that he's very uh, a solution-oriented person to tackle the problems that this mega city actually has. Uh, so is it surprising that he has won? No. But the way that he has won and by what margin? Oh, yeah, definitely. I should probably mention that he has won more than 1,380,000 votes in Bangkok. And if we go back a little bit, for a good few months, poll after poll was indicating that he would win. So as you said, him winning was not necessarily a shock. But the number of votes that he has managed to garner, given the actual number of candidates, it's quite unprecedented. I mean, it's the, it's the highest number of votes any Bangkok governor has ever garnered in the city. What do you think can he credit this really high number of votes to? Well, as we said before, I mean, he's definitely a non-quantity in Thai politics. Uh, people have known him. Let's go a little bit into his origin story. I mean, when he came onto the scene as transport minister in 2013 or so, I think one of his first things that he came, uh, that he did was he announced that, okay, I'm the transport minister. I'm going to write every single bus line here in Bangkok to see which one is the worst, which is line number eight, by the way, for those in Bangkok. And I think that is something that has really gotten a lot of attention and also a lot of popularity because people saw like, oh, wow, this is, there's somebody who is actually, you know, getting his hands dirty, uh, going into the issues and trying to sort it out himself. In my opinion, his potential or the his tenure was just caught short by the military coup of 2014. So we didn't really see what he would have been as a transport minister. And I think that is also the part of the electorate that they wanted to know is like, what can he actually do? So fast forward to 2019, after the general elections, he left the Purtai party and started campaigning already at that point, thinking that the Bank of Governor elections would be called very soon, but it didn't. He turned it into an advantage and campaigned all the way, all these two years until today. So that's why he was also able to build up an even bigger audience. Uh, he campaigned longer than anybody. He built up such a big name that he is so hard to ignore. And as we said, that he was basically selling a more pragmatic approach to all these policies, not some grand vision or some grand ideology like some other candidates have done. 
Indeed. And we all know, and obviously most observers of Thai politics know that Thailand is often about personalities and personalities loom large in, in Thai politics as, as per usual. But I think what's quite interesting about Chad Chad as well is that, as you said, he's been campaigning for two years prior to this election, but also he had a pretty solid policy platform, right? Yeah, but it doesn't mean that he's boring. Quite the opposite. I think part of his legend or part of his popularity is also that he is the first Thai mainstream politician to be turned into an internet meme. The reason is that way back after the military coup in 2014, he was once photographed going to a temple in just a black tank top, shorts, and barefoot. As a mid-50-year-old man, he's in pretty good shape. So people have seen that, you know, not only is he pragmatic, but he is also very down-to-earth and also not being above it. He has also has turned that into a into a strength as well during his campaign, showing that he is a not only an everyman, but he is also somebody who is also participating in almost every joke or basically that uh, he's in on every joke that is made about him. But uh, then turning to his policies, uh, yeah, I mean, these are, again, these are not some grand vision, yet he is not announcing some big visionary change. He basically has pinpointed 200 action plans where he can say like, okay, this is something we can do. This is how we do it. Uh, we can do this and we can do that. And it all sounds pretty reasonable. It definitely doesn't sound like uh, some some pie in the sky. It's some something that you just promise and it would be almost impossible to achieve. But these all sound very realistic. Whether or not he will be able to achieve them, that is, of course, a different matter. Yeah, definitely. But I think the sheer number of these action points, as you said, like 200, that's, again, compared to other candidates, um, you know, you cannot really compare that. And realistically, some of the other candidates didn't have such clear agenda in terms of what they were, were proposing, which... Again, if we look at the history of Thai politics, this is not unusual where politicians tend to campaign more on their sort of name and personalities and don't have, let's say, solid policy platforms. So in some way, this was a, a combination of, of both, right? And you're right. I mean, and most of the time, Thai politics is definitely personality-based, personality-driven. And usually when there's an election time around, you know, they, they they promise all sorts of different things, but never say how they're going to achieve them. And and I think, you know, in this in this campaign race, even though we had so many different candidates, everybody with their own plan, but also to be honest, a lot of these people with also overlapping plans and overlapping goals, uh, it definitely it took something to stand out from that. And uh, just, just, uh, just to spare a thought, about uh, the outgoing governor, Asawin Kwan Meung, um, former uh, senior police officer who came into office in 2016, appointed by the then military government. He had a very tall order when he started to campaign. Basically, he came in and said something like, just vote me so things can go on as usual. And I think the biggest disadvantage is that he had to convince people what he has actually done in the past five years, mm. because that was the biggest question mark to those people. It's like, yeah, what have you actually done in the past five years? I think this takes me a little bit towards other candidates. I mean, obviously, as we said, there were 31 candidates, which we can't really talk about all of them. But have there been any major surprises from where you're standing and from your observations? Would you say that any of the, the remaining results came as a surprise? 
there was some strategic voting going on in the last week, and it definitely has been reflected in the results. One of the big questions with a field that large is whether or not the candidates are going to cannibalize each other, especially in the different political camps. So we have the camps on the more progressive leaning sides, um, which Chachat belongs to, and also of the more um, pro-government, pro-status quo, conservative side, uh, where Asawin Kwanmeng comes from, and also so many other candidates as well. So basically you had the risk of both sides cannibalizing each other and so that's why there was the strategic voting on the conservative side not to give all your votes to Asawin, but instead to his former deputy Sakonti. this man is a very interesting guy very young 44 years old but he was part of the anti-election movement in 2013 2014 that have paved the way for the military coup in 2014 to take place so him coming in competing in a democratic election you know asking for everybody's vote and then also not doing so badly all things considered definitely doing better than his former boss is definitely a sure sign that even though Shachat has won so big and by and large but there's still a conservative uh, electorate here i mean i was asked before the elections whether or not the so-called shy tory phenomenon exists um, it's a british term where people that are secretly voting conservative but would never publicly admit that that exists here in thailand too but i would also argue that it exists across the political spectrum because open political partisanship is just a very recent phenomenon that we have seen in the past 20 years so going back to this point i said before that the campaign was mostly positive and mostly constructive but then in the last week, the conservative side started to do some fear mongering, saying that, oh, if you don't vote for us or if you vote for Chachad or for the other side, then this will pave a way for the return of Taksin Shinawat, who has been in exile since 2008. For many conservative and for many ultra-nationalists and royalists, reasons maybe we get to later, he's still a bogeyman and he's still the ultimate evil that needs to be uh, stopped at every corner. So that's why they came with this fear-mongering and that's why it was reflected in the results, even though they had really no big effect on the large scale and the big picture on the results. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. And I think, um, as you said, when we look back even to the 2019 general elections and we zoom in on the result in Bangkok, Bangkok was pretty much split between the conservative vote and the, the more progressive vote and the Palang Pracharat party, which was the pro-military party and now is the ruling party in, in, in the government, managed to get 13 seats. And then the rest of the seats was split between Kutai and at that time Future Forward Party, which has been dissolved since then. And now it's Move Forward Party. You could see that little bit in, in the top three positions within the governor election as well, because obviously Chachad has won with such a huge mar margin. Um, but then the second place and the third place was taken by, well, the second place was taken by the Democrat Party candidate, and the third place was taken by the candidate from the Move Forward Party. So you have that a little bit reflected on those results. But obviously, the difference between the top spot and the second and the third is, is massive. It's more than a million votes. But basically, you had Chachad having 50% or 51% of the vote and then everybody else. Exactly. When we look at it from this point of view, would you then say that this result indicates that kind of move towards more progressive politics, at least in Bangkok for now? 
I would argue that it is more a reactive result to the current politics that are going on on a national level. We have to, and we will probably get to that when we put that data in, in, in the national context. It's just simply the fact that also you have to keep in mind that Palang Pasadat, as you just mentioned, and the other big ruling party, they didn't send any candidates. And so did Purtai. And Purtai also didn't send any candidates into the race whatsoever. So we have the two biggest parties missing in action. They have mostly focused on the city council elections. But it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if they have sent a candidates to compete even against them. So, so, you know, we have already 31. If you send in two more, what would have happened? Would have been interesting to see, but it would, they still probably wouldn't have beaten Chacha, but they could have uh, nibbled off some percentage of the votes as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if, if they fielded candidates, they would have split the vote even further. But would it make a real difference? And obviously, that's one of the reasons why they didn't, especially per tie, because they knew that Chacha had a real chance to become the governor. So it was really a tactical move. As I mentioned earlier, it wasn't just the governor election, but it was also the local administration and council election in Bangkok. And that also gives us quite interesting story itself. So the Purtai party won, I think, 20 seats, I believe. And then the next one was Move Forward Party with 14 seats, followed by Democrat Party with nine. And then again, Palang Prachara didn't really do well. It, it, it only gained like two seats. Yeah. Are we really seeing a bit more of a swing in, in, in the preferences of the at least the Bangkok electorate? Yes and no. So the city council, just to give some context, is basically the, you know, the local parliament uh, that is uh, keeping the governor in check, um, basically. And this is also the first time that the city council election has taken place on the same day as the governor election. So you had this double race and also a lot of a lot of parties and a lot of people have been campaigning basically to say, hey, vote for both of us. It's interesting, though, that to see then you, that you have candidates like Chachat who came as an independent but doesn't have a party uh, or, or group to back. And, but then also you have candidates who has not only a governor, but also a party running for the city council. So in that in that context, yes, first of all, it's a slap in the face for Palang Basharat that they only scored two seats. In many, many, many districts, they were not even second or third. They were way down in the ranks. They were even beaten by another group called the Rak Kungtheb or the Love Banker Group, which is not a political party, but more like an action pack of the former governor, uh, Asawin. So basically, you had two people from the same political camp going against each other. So that also cannibalizes each other, right? It is definitely a rejection of Palang Pasharat on a national level, because the ugly truth is that not a lot of people are paying attention to what's happening on a local level. I don't want to go so far and say that Palang Basharat, that that brand name is a poison chalice, but it definitely, the brand name has taken a lot of damage and it's not something that everybody wants to be associated right now, especially after this result. Indeed, and that's perhaps a relatively big change on the 2019 result. But um, I believe that Prime Minister Prayut has recently commented on the results, saying, well, you know, this is just the opinion of, of the bank electorate. It doesn't really mean anything on the on the national level. So if we really look on the national level and with the view that Thailand potentially might hold general election within next year, I mean, obviously, Prayut's term as the Prime Minister is up next year anyway. So whether the election will happen next year or, or earlier, who knows? <laughs> I mean, especially in Thailand, right? But all these things and speculations aside, there will be election probably within next year. So what does this tell us about the feelings of the people and how do you think this will reflect into the national level 
result when we have the next election. First of all, it was a pretty uh, foolish comment by Prime Minister Prayut Janusha saying that, you know, it's it's just the opinion of one province. Yeah, it's the only province where people can vote for the governor. Everybody else is appointed. So it definitely speaks volume that the only province where people can vote has rejected the ruling party. With that said, it's definitely going to, to have implications going forward what we have on the national level, especially with uh, general elections coming sometime within the next 12 months. You said earlier that the governor election took place on May 22nd, which was the anniversary of the military coup of 2014. And um, it is pretty poignant to see a rejection of the current political status quo taking place on that very same day. So it is definitely a punishment for what has been going on for the past few years. And you have to keep in mind that a lot has happened, mainly the COVID-19 pandemic and the handling of the government of that and also the economic fallout from that. And then when people thought that COVID was over, well, it's still not over, but you know what I mean. We have other problems right now, you know, rising inflation costs, fuel prices are going up. And there's a lot more economic gripes affecting a lot more people. And whenever that happens, then the one who gets the blame is whoever is in power right now. And also, I mean, if we look at least at uh, Palang Pracharat party itself, and also the ruling coalition, there's been a lot of fractionalism, a lot of internal infighting. And people are looking at that and people are taking note of, of these things. So there's, there's been probably a lot that perhaps is making people rethink. It's definitely just part of a bigger problem how Thai political culture has evolved or rather devolved uh, over the past four years. Um, In my personal opinion, Thai political culture is back in the 1990s. What do I mean with that? It's just that it's less run by ideology. It's more run by personalities. And these personalities are usually not in it for the betterment of the population, but they are more just to hold on to power and uh, try to negotiate that power with other people. And there's no a clearer picture than having a 19-party coalition in parliament right now. The biggest coalition that we ever had, and probably also the most shakiest of all House of Cards uh, that we have seen in parliament as well. So we have, you know, as he says, not only different parties, but even within these parties, you have different factions as well. Palang Pasarat as a party is very interesting because it's just a couple of years old and has only been cobbled together by very different groups to keep Rayut Janosha in power from the transition of a military government to a democratically elected government. And you have different factions. Not only do you have the technocrats from the past military coup, you have uh, career politicians that are coming in, that are, they are bringing in the bulk of the numbers. So what happens when you meet technocrats or career politicians, the technocrats get outsmarted by the career politicians. And then you have a very unruly party that you are trying to keep together and just also to keep, not only to keep the peace, but just to keep the stability of the government. And then you have also other coalition partners. They also want a piece of the pie as well. So all that, trying to manage all that and trying to keep everything together is a very hard task for the powers that be. I mean, it's almost impossible. And there's been obviously a lot of groups and cliques that have left the party um, and are now setting up new parties, which will be competing on the same or very similar conservative platform anyway, splitting the vote even further potentially. So that could be another layer. But this is something that will be in future. And as we know, Thai politics is quite unpredictable. So um, I don't want to be inviting you for more and more speculations. 
I'm going to use the fact that I've got a journalist on this podcast from Thailand. And I just want to ask you, how was it from your position of being a, a journalist in Thailand? You know, what was it like covering this, this election? And maybe even then more generally, how do you tend to navigate Thailand's many political sensitivities? Because it's not easy for any one of us. But as a journalist, you're out there every single day and you're putting yourself on the line. Absolutely not. I think I will start with the last question first. Um, I think, first of all, what I need to make clear, as a foreign journalist, I enjoy a lot more freedoms and a lot more privileges than many of our local colleagues. Um, I, and I'm not, I'm not um, taking this uh, privilege lightly. So, and this is something that we have to keep in mind as well, that you know what I do or the way that I can move around comes from a place of privilege as well. So having said that, as a Thai person, it definitely makes a lot, a lot of things a lot easier, being able to speak the language and know the lay of the land and also knowing the cultural sensitivities of certain people. Whether or not I will respect these cultural sensitivities is a different matter. It's 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 definitely easier for me to 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 cover a lot of these things, um, because also we are not uh, as an international broadcaster, we are not required to cover this on a daily basis. Of course, when it's interesting and when it's relevant, we will cover it and we will cover it every day if it happens. But it gives also us a little bit more freedom to pull us back, go a little, a couple of steps back and look at the big picture, not only for people that are in Thailand, but also for people that are in Asia. But the best thing for me as an Asian network is that we still do more than other broadcasters in, or international outlets, not naming any names, but that is what we do on a daily basis. And I'm very glad and very proud to be part of it. There are, of course, many challenges that we are facing as journalists, especially in the political sphere. First of all, telling the newsmakers and the stakeholders who we are, and also trying to tell them why they also need to look at an international audience as well. Because Thailand is not an island, uh, even though some people think they are. But it is important to see them. You are not only being watched by your people in your country, you're also being watched by people outside of the country as well, what you do and what you don't do. So that is already the first challenge. The second challenge is obviously, of course, certain limitations to freedom of speech. But again, that I can that I have a little bit more freedom than others. Obviously, the elephant in the room is the less majest law. When we are talking about the monarchy, when we are talking about the sensitivities about the monarchy, that we have uh, certain red lines that we cannot overstep. Having said that, we can talk about the law itself. We can talk about the cases under which people have charged and also the issues why this is being brought up. And this is especially important in the aftermath of the student protests that we have in 2020 and 2021, where we have been out daily on the streets to talk about these issues, but we also had to find a balance about the demands as well. So we definitely named these things. We definitely talked about why they're, why they're on the streets and what the targets are, and especially with the daily protests picking out a specific issue, a specific uh, target, we have to name these things by names. For example, like, why are they going to the German embassy? Why are they going to SC, uh, the SCB bank? These are all related to the monarchy. And then we, of course, we had to name these people. It definitely was a challenging time, but I think there are ways to go on, go on about this while still keeping people informed and giving them the context that they need to understand the issues and developments that are going on in Thailand. Of course, we are still applying the same standards to the Bangkok gubernatorial race, which uh, by all intents and purposes is a local race, but nevertheless an interesting one because it happens in a major Asian uh, metropolitan city. So 
there are issues there and we have covered them comprehensively, me and my colleague Mei Wong, with all the usual journalistic standards that we approach any story. There are a few things that I could have you elaborate on, but one of the very interesting things that you said and, and reflected upon was the, the student protest or youth-led protest in Thailand. And while these protests were happening, it was obvious that they pushed the boundaries of the debate of what was possible to say about the monarchy quite far, a lot further than it has ever been. They shattered a number of important taboos. And I'd like to maybe know, how is it now? Obviously, the protests have fizzled out. They perhaps haven't really achieved some of the concrete demands that they were after. But when we look at the, the discursive level and what you can and cannot say today in Thailand, is there still a difference? Like, have they made this difference? Without going too much into detail, yeah, definitely. There is a, a difference has been made, even though it's not as visible as uh, the protesters might uh, think or might have liked it. Uh, definitely the conversation about the monarchy and how it is integrated into the power structure and the power system has definitely changed. Nowadays, a lot of people are talking more openly about these issues, downright almost fearless of the repercussions. However, it doesn't mean that there are no repercussions. There are, they exist. And uh, right now, there are over two dozen uh, activists in jail and pre-trial detention and that are being held on less majesty charges. Even more people that are currently out on bail that can't do anything right now either. So there are definitely consequences, legal consequences and otherwise of people attempting this uprising. But then on the other hand, there is probably the realization of the activists that these kind of changes or whatever kind of changes they are targeting takes a lot more time than they were probably thinking it would. Yeah, you can't achieve such a massive change within within a year or two. But considering what was possible, and I remember, you know, my first time ever in Thailand was back in 2009, 2010. And I do remember that the topic of the monarchy, it was something that really you were told not to even engage and people wouldn't necessarily engage on that at a certain level in, in an everyday conversation. And obviously then we had the red shirt protests in 2010 and those already started shattering some of the, the taboos and things of what can be or cannot be said. But the scale of them, at least back then, wasn't comparable to what happened a few years back. And also what you have to keep in mind is also a completely different generation that has been on the streets as well. But there was one more thing as well that you said, which I think it it could be quite interesting. And that's the position you have as an inside outsider or outside insider, obviously, given that you're yourself a Thai and um, the fact that you are in a position of being a, a foreign journalist. And you've already indicated that that brings certain advantages, but does it also bring some disadvantages? Because I know that as a foreigner trying sometimes to do research in Thailand, there is a level where people might not tell me as much. And then there's sometimes a level when they might take me a bit more than they would to a tie. So how does that affect you? It's it's very individual. So it's a very individual case by case, um, you know, whether or not being a Thai foreign journalist gives me an advantage or a disadvantage. I think it definitely gives me advantage that, for example, in the reporting, and especially when there are breaking news and very immediate, I don't need a translator, so I can immediately say 
what's being said. Um, it was very handy during all these COVID announcements that we had uh, when people were relying on very up to the minute, very precise information that was um, definitely given in Thai, but not necessarily given in English. But also on the other hand, It really depends. Some, as you just said yourself, I mean, you have made these experiences too. Some people um, uh, are more open to foreigners or foreign-looking um, people or not. Uh, but then, you know, just to take the direction that of your previous question, I think there are different thoughts about what a foreign correspondent is nowadays. Uh, the old mm -hmm. model is that we have somebody from abroad coming in, trying to explain what's going on in the country that uh, they are in through their lens from the native country and then reporting it back to wherever they come from. And uh, they will be here then for a limited time in, um, to avoid the risk of going native. You have that uh, not only with journalists, you have that with diplomats and other people of multinational companies, etc. For me, it's a little bit different. I think being a Thai, but not really growing up here, I was born and raised in Germany. Being native, but then again, not really fully native either. There's a different definition of foreign correspondence that needs to happen or that is allowed to uh, grow now, that you have quasi-native journalists explaining their own country with their own sensibilities to the rest of the world, but they also understand both sides. They understand the sensibilities of their native or home country, but also they understand how to explain that to a broader, more international audience. So that is, for example, something that not only a lot of Thai governments, also a lot of Thai companies or other Thai entities, for example, don't understand where they try to pitch something to the wider world or try to reach a more international audience. But we definitely do. We definitely know what language other people speak. And we definitely are in the best position to translate that to a wider audience. Yeah, the position that you have and, and also the upbringing that you have and the career path that you've chosen have all came together and can help you in, in certain ways to be able to be in both worlds with each feed in some ways. Definitely. And a bit of shameless self-plug. I mean, CNA is one of these broadcasters that uh, follows this model. Nearly all of our correspondents are based in Asia and they are mostly native to their own country or at the very least speak the language uh, where they are. So we are an Asian broadcaster. And um, by that understanding, we are Asian correspondents broadcasting from here and explaining this region to the wide audience. As you say, the language, and, and I know from a position of a researcher, once you learn the language and once you can speak the language, it can definitely take you so much further than if you have to rely on other people to translate for you. Because oftentimes it is the nuance, the words that people use that can tell you sometimes even more than the actual meaning of, of the words. Absolutely. Or, you know, sometimes the, the message is in what isn't being said, um, that, that some people that some people might pick up that other people might not pick up. Hmm. Well, unfortunately, we are actually nearing the, the, the end of this podcast. And it's, it's a real shame that I can't really talk to you for a lot longer, because it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this episode. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both about the gubernatorial elections, the local elections, but also what it means to be a journalist in a country like Thailand. So I really appreciate you taking time. And thanks a lot for, for coming in. Thanks for having me. And I'm pretty sure we have a lot more to talk about in the next episode. Yeah, exactly. We should definitely do another one. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia.
I'm Petra Alderman, Associate Researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen, and a postdoctoral research fellow at the International Development Department at the University of Birmingham. I've been talking today to Saxit Sesombat, CNA's Thailand correspondent in Bangkok. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.